Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. What does Jesus's mission look like here? What's his mission here? What does Jesus's mission look like here? What does Jesus's mission look like here? What is Jesus's mission here? How do I know what Jesus's mission is? Good to see you today. My name is Josh, if you don't know me, and uh, one of the pastors here. Welcome to all of you who are online. Really glad you're with us today, too. And uh, we're in the book of Acts. We're working our way through the New Testament book of Acts, and uh, it's going to take us a long time to get through. We're in week 12, and we got uh, probably at least a year to go, so it's going to be fun. But this morning, uh, as we get started, the the story we're in reminds me a little bit of what's going on there of a... Uh, a Peanuts cartoon. You know, like Charlie Brown, Linus, and Lucy. Well, uh, in this one cartoon, Lucy comes and barges in the room and demands that her little brother Linus change the TV channel, threatening him with her fist if he didn't. What makes you think you can walk right in here and take over? Linus asks her. These five fingers, said Lucy. Individually, they're nothing, but when I curl them together like this into a single unit, they form a weapon that's terrible to behold. Linus looked at her for a little bit and he said, well, which, which channel do you want? <laughs> Turning away, he looked at his own fingers and he said, why can't you guys get organized like this? <laughs> you know, uh, this morning we're gonna see God's people united, kind of like Lucy's five fingers. And when, when God's people are united, when there's unity among them in the gospel and in their faith uh, and in mission, they're a terrible force to behold in a very, very good way. And uh, so we're gonna see that this morning and we're gonna see examples of the fruit of unity and we're gonna see an example, a, a really a heartbreaking example of, of what could uh, totally disrupt their unity and how God deals with that. So uh, with that, let me pray. Then we're gonna be in Acts chapter four and into chapter five this morning, but let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. And uh, Jesus, thank you for living the life I couldn't, for dying in my place on the cross, rising from the grave and giving me uh, your life. Holy Spirit, I pray that uh, as we look at your word here this morning, you would continue to protect the unity of our church here. And um, Holy Spirit, I pray too you would help me uh, as I teach your word to, to, to teach it well, to let my words be your own. And Father, that in, in each of our lives, we would leave challenged and changed. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus. We pray all this through him. Amen. Well, if you got your Bible, uh, you can turn with me to Acts chapter four. We're in Acts chapter four, starting in verse 32, and we've seen some exciting things happening in the early church. And now Luke gives us a little summary statement as he moves into kind of a new part of the story. He says, now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. 
And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them for as many as were owners of lands or houses, they sold them and they brought the proceeds of what was sold and they laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as anyone had need. Uh, one of the things that we see here is, is God at work in big ways in his church uh, with great grace and great power. That's theirs through the gospel. It's, it's through the gospel. Um, great grace and great power. And, and here's how it goes through the gospel. Uh, Luke starts off when he gives an account. He says, now the full number of, of which group? Those who just attended, those who just you know, kind of liked them, those who uh, had the t-shirt, uh, it's the full number of those who believed. That group who believed, that's what changed them. See, when you believe the gospel, when you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins in your place, rose from the grave to give you life and hope and a future, it changes you because the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within you. It's life-changing, friends, when you truly believe that. And in our passage this morning, we see two effects of that life-changing belief. Two effects of God's grace and his power on display. There's a growing heart toward people in this group who truly believed, and there's a dying heart towards their stuff. Uh, John Piper uh, says it this way. He says, two of the effects of believing in Jesus are that the heart is loosened in relationship to things and it's tightened in its relationship to people. We see this in verse 32. Now the company of those who believed, notice the word. This is the key, believing in Jesus as Savior and Lord, trusting him for all you need, being satisfied with all that God is for you in Jesus. That's the key. That's the root of what's happening in this story. Everything good comes from that, from believing upon Jesus Christ. Faith is an essential characteristic of early Christians and of the early church. And so look with me now just how believing in Jesus tightened the church's heart in its relationship toward people. Look, look it says those who believed, look at their heart being tightened towards one another. They were of one heart and soul. They, they had unity, they were together. You know, this, they, they shared a heart for God and for one another. And this was a promise that God made that this would happen. He promised it multiple times in the Old Testament. I'll, I'll show you one. In, in Jeremiah chapter 32, he says, I will give them one heart, speaking of his people in the future, and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and for the good of their children after them. He would give us one heart. And he says it again in Ezekiel and, and in other places. And now it's happening there's unity of heart and soul among them. Uh, and then we also see the, the tightening of their hearts, the, the loosening, I should say, of their hearts in relationship to other things, to things, to stuff. Uh, look at the rest of this. So they were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Now, it doesn't say that nobody had anything. It doesn't say that. Doesn't say as we're gonna see that everybody sold everything. Doesn't say that. 
Everybody still had a number of things. What it suggests is just that no one was claiming owner's rights. They, they, they weren't exhibiting selfishness or possessiveness, like it was theirs and nobody else's. Uh, and, and when they would give, they would give without expectation of reciprocity, which was unheard of in that day. You know what I mean by that? Uh, you, I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine. Like something in return for whatever they would give. They expected nothing. And, and it was surely the church's spiritual unity because of what they believed uh, that prompted this generosity. I mean, no one was required to contribute to the needs of others. It was, it was all voluntary. And as I mentioned, not everyone sold everything. They, they continued throughout the book of Acts and the epistles and the New Testament to meet in homes. Whose homes? Well, the people who didn't sell their home. <laughs> they, they met there. And some of them evidently were pretty wealthy, like Mary, mother of John. Uh, she had a home that a lot of people could meet in. So there's nothing good or bad about possessions. It's, it's your heart towards them. And as you believe in Jesus, your heart becomes looser towards them and recognizing that uh, it's all God's. The, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell in it. Everything belongs to him. Everything I have, everything you have, it's not yours. It's God's, everything is his. He's just graciously given it to you, which makes it a lot easier than to share it with others when we have the opportunity. So uh, all of this then just yielded incredible unity. And, and notice when I say unity, I'm not talking uh, uniformity. You know, like everybody uh, looking the same, acting the same. It, it's, it's, it's not that everybody saw everything eye to eye. They still had disagreements. They still had frustrations. I mean, it's wrong to think like some do uh, that when believers dwell in unity that everybody carries the same Bible, they read the same books, they promote the same style and lifestyle, they educate their children in the exact same way, uh, that they have all the same likes and dislikes and that they all just become Christian clones. That actually breeds disunity, not unity. Because then there's this standard of trying to measure up to something that we're not. Uh, Differences of opinion are inevitable among people. I mean, next time you're with your extended family, just bring up politics or your faith or anything else and see how that goes. But differences of opinion are, of opinion are actually really good when they're handled correctly. God uses that to make all of us stronger and better when we see things differently. Uh, Psalmist writes, behold, how good and pleasant it is then when brothers dwell in unity. And that unity is not based on everybody being the same. It's based on the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and his work. But you know, unity is, is fleeting, isn't it? It can disappear quickly. A church that's uh, incredibly united and at peace today could be in the throes of all kinds of turmoil tomorrow if that unity isn't protected and fostered. And uh, that's done by, in terms of what we teach, it's, it's done in really practical ways, even in terms of language we use for different things. All of those things foster unity. And just, they, really what they do is they eliminate uh, things to fight about. But the other thing that can cause disunity is if someone comes in and they're given a role of leadership, but they don't have the same heartbeat or DNA of the church. Um, 
they, they could take off in a different direction, not intentionally, not in a bad way, but it just, it could breed disunity, couldn't it? That's why we're slow to appoint people to leadership in our church. It, it takes some time. You have to go through some training. You gotta be here a few years at least. Uh, you can serve before that time, but in terms of being able to lead. And it takes like so much of God's grace, a huge dose of his grace and power to maintain unity. I'd, I'd say it takes a mega dose. The Bible does too, let's keep reading. Uh, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him, see they were theirs, was his own, but they had everything in common. They were willing to share it. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. If you could see underneath the English text there to the Greek, you would read uh, megas dynamite, dynamas. Mega dynamite, mega power, great power. It takes God's great power to change us and to unite us in faith in Jesus. And not only that, but he gives us a mega charis, mega grace, great grace. Unending grace he gives to us. It's incredible. He forgives and he gives second, third, fourth, fifth chances and he's, he gives unmerited favor to his church as we seek him and turn to him and turn back to him when we wander. It takes some mega power and some mega grace. And uh, with this then, uh, we read in verse 34, there was not a needy person among them. This is how it worked out. For as many as were owners of lands or houses, they, they sold them and they brought the proceeds of what was sold and they laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now, uh, we shouldn't read today's culture into that or read that culture into today's culture either. You know, um, in, in that day, the, the principle here is that the Christians loved each other so much that when they saw each other in need, they did whatever was necessary to alleviate the pressure. If that meant selling some goods, they sold some things. If it meant getting rid of, getting rid of their family homestead or some prized land, they were willing to sell it because of their great love for people. And it's this devotion of Christians to one another. Jesus said, they're gonna know you're following me by your love for each other. And it was on display in the early church. Um, now, uh, to, to you and I, this becomes an important lesson for today because uh, many of the kinds of problems that the early Christians met, uh, that they met with that kind of self-sacrifice today in our society are cared for by, by the welfare state. And I don't mean that in a pejorative way at all. I mean that in the sense that there's, there's uh, government organizations and programs and nonprofits and all kinds of different things that care for a lot of these needs that in the early church, there were no such things to care for people in that way. And so the church stepped up to do it. Well, today there are uh, many, many helps to people in those ways and in our society, which is an expression of God's grace. Uh, and so whether you agree with some of those things or not, what I would suggest to you is that this means that in, in addition to just, uh, just giving of our funds of ways that maybe they did, 
It, it means demonstrating devotion to one another by all kinds of other practical ways. You know, um, it, it may be that some people are in need financially and, and will help at times. But some, a lot of times when we write a check, it's just easy to write a check and step away and be done. And, oh, that was easy, right? Or to give it and send it to India or send it overseas somewhere and there's no connection there. And so in a certain sense, in our culture, like this type of sacrifice that they, isn't maybe even a financial sacrifice as much as it is, how about writing a check of your time to go be with the person who just needs somebody to be with them? Maybe it is some financial sacrifice. And so are you willing to to write that physical check to help them or to give to the church or whatever else as well? Maybe to help with a new baby, help with somebody who's elderly or blind or in various positions of despair and loneliness or discouragement. You know, in in our busy culture, the greatest, often the greatest mark of self-sacrifice is just giving your time. You know, uh, I'll give you one other example. Uh, maybe uh, you attend Wawasee Bible and you notice there's a lot of young families here with young kids, which is fun. If you stick around after the service, you'll see some of them running around, probably my own at some point, maybe has run into you. But you know, there's, with those young families, you've got a lot of young moms who are tired, who've maybe been uh, young moms and dads who've been with their kids a lot during the week and uh, they just they love to come to church as an opportunity to, to hear from God's word and get refreshed. And by God's grace, he's given us a good kids ministry where our, our kids are, are being taught in age appropriate ways about God's word and all those things. And it, it, by the people who serve there and give of their time, it, it invests in you to be able to sit in here and hear from God's word. Maybe the Lord would put on you, you know what? I could probably give some time to help meet that need in some of those young families. I could... I could come to two services. I could serve during one and then attend in another. And some of you do that. I'm grateful for you. But that's just one example of, it's a great opportunity to give of yourself for the good of God's people. Now, uh, that's kind of the, the, the story of what's happening, right? They're, they're incredibly gracious and to one another and generous to one another, I should say, and God's grace and his power is at work. And then the, the last couple of verses of chapter four and then into chapter five, Luke gives us a couple examples. One really positive of this playing out and one danger to watch out for. So do you wanna start with the good news or the bad news first? Bad news, good, because that's the outline. So we're going bad news first. Sound good? Uh, here's, here's the first thing. God's, God gives great grace and power through the gospel to his church to purge spiritual deception. Let me unpack that a little bit, to purge spiritual deception. Well, actually, even before I unpack it, let's just look at the story starting in chapter five. Uh, But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, they, they sold a piece of property. This sounds familiar to what we were just reading about, right? People selling their things and then giving it to the good of the church. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and he brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Uh, Verse three, but Peter said to him when he brought it, he said, Ananias, uh, why Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself 
part of the proceeds of the land. Uh, that word filled here has the idea of control and influence. You know, the, the early church was filled with the spirit and now he's telling Ananias, who uh, claims to be part of the church, you're, you're, you're not filled with the spirit, you're filled with Satan, with the enemy. And Peter says, how, how is it? How did, how did he get a hold on you? See, I don't think Peter says this uh, just with like anger or an accusatory way. I, I, I think he's probably saying it with a great sense of concern and compassion and, and even hurt in what's going on. How, how is it that this happened? Uh, the sin Ananias and Sapphira committed wasn't uh, stinginess, by the way, in holding back their money. Their sin, as we're gonna see, was, was lying to God and to God's people saying that they gave the whole amount, but holding back some for themselves and then trying to make themselves appear more generous than they really were. They were trying to deceive everybody. And ultimately, Peter says, you're, you're trying to deceive God and God won't be mocked. Um, here's how we know this is true. That's what Peter's saying. He says, when it remained unsold, didn't it remain yours? It was yours, wasn't it? And even after this was sold and you got the check, you could do whatever you wanted to with that money, right? It was, it was at your disposal. So why have you contrived this deed in your heart? Why'd you make up this story that you sold it for this much, but you really sold it for this much and then you kept some back and then laid it at our feet and made this scene like you gave this, this huge amount when, why didn't you just give what you wanted to give and call it a day? You haven't lied to us, you've, you've lied to God. The fact that believers had the right to keep some of their money shows that uh, this was not, as some have contended, Christian socialism or communism. It, it was just their free will gift to the church. Uh, communism would say what's everybody's is mine. Christianity says no, what's the heart of here is what's mine is, is yours. There's a big difference. Verse five, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. Now, this is a bit of a terrifying passage, isn't it? Because how many of us have tried to maybe portray ourselves in a way in which we're not? A little better than we are, exaggerate the story or, that's easy to do, isn't it? See, some think that the, the passage that happens right before this that we're gonna come back to is Barnabas comes and gives a gift and people rejoice and it's a great gift. And so uh, some commentators think that, well, maybe Ananias and Sapphira saw the treatment Barnabas got after he gave that. And so they thought, well, we kind of like that. That'd be kind of nice. And so they make a big deal and come up with this scheme and make it look like they gave a whole bunch that they didn't give. And try to deceive everybody into thinking they're more generous than they really are. And when Ananias heard it, that Peter knew what had happened, he fell down and breathed his last. Some, some think, well, maybe he just had a heart attack in the shock of being found out. That happens. I don't know how God did it. But after he died, as you can imagine, great fear came on everyone. The young men uh, rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. 
And after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. I don't know what she was doing. Maybe she was out shopping with some of the money they had kept back, just enjoying her day. And she comes in and, and Peter says, uh, uh, hey, uh, Sapphira, I have a question. How much did you guys sell that property for? Was it for this amount? And she said, yeah, it was, it was for that amount. It was for so much. Peter gave her an opportunity to repent and she didn't. Peter said to her, well then, just how is it that you've agreed to test the spirit of the Lord like this? Behold, the, the guys who buried your husband a few hours ago, they're waiting now and now they're gonna come grab you. They put the, spirits, the, Lord, the, the spirit of the Lord to the test, which means uh, they tested the spirit to see how long they could get away with their scheme until he called them on the carpet to see how much they could get away with before God would act or respond according to his word, according to who he says he is. And uh, their whole act was wrongheaded, self-serving, church-destroying, and it was sinful. And part of God's great grace and his great power to the church through the gospel is to, to purge us of that self, that spiritual, I should say, deception. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Again, as you can imagine, I bet nobody tried to present themselves better than they were for a while at church the next few weeks, wouldn't you think? No, yep, I'm a sinner. <laughs> Here's what I did. Here's it all. God's grace purges us of that self-deception. And, and when that spiritual deception, which is uh, in part, it's, it's deceiving others. I mean, let's face it, if, if, if it were up to me, I don't know about you, but I would prefer that that text read, uh, Peter called out Ananias and then Sapphira and they repented and they turned back and then they went back, decided what to give, gave it. And uh, they kind of started at the beginning and everything was good and everybody went on their way and life was better. That sounds like a better story to me, doesn't it? But that's not what happened. Paul tells us that stories like this and those in the Old Testament, when guys like Achan did the same thing in Joshua chapter seven, are given to us just as a warning to us to, to guard your heart, as examples for, for you and I, to not fall into the same trap. You know, Ananias and Sapphira, they, they fell into this category of people who maybe sought glory for themselves and wanted to be noticed and affirmed for what they did. The, the church throughout its history has attracted people like that. It's attracted people who, uh, with impure motives that are kind of hucksters and try to profit financially from religion or people who want control and power and authority that's not theirs and people who are self-centered and want to be pampered and cared for. And Ananias and Sapphira, they just, they just wanted to get uh, some of the credit that was God's for themselves. 
Their scheme was dishonest and, and God's judgment was swift and sure. So as you think about their story, what's, what's your motive for serving and giving of yourself and of your time and of your treasure? Is it self-serving or is it for the Lord? If it's self-serving, you might just be trying to deceive others. Get people to think, oh, I'm, I'm better than, than that and I'm kind of at this level. It, it might be uh, deceiving the other person who's maybe easy, most easily deceived in your life and that's yourself. Well, if, if I can, because if I can deceive others, then, well, then I guess I'm, I'm doing pretty good, right? And finding my identity in those things rather than in the gospel, rather than living it out, really giving of my time, really giving of my treasure, really doing it for the right motives. I, there's a bumper sticker out there that says, uh, tithe if you love Jesus. Any idiot can honk. In other words, give of yourself. Give of your treasure. Give of your talent. Give of your time. Don't just, don't just put the bumper sticker on and think that's enough. Truly live it out. See, because God's grace and power through the gospel, it purges spiritual deception, but it also nurtures authenticity. It nurtures it. It helps it grow. See, friends, God sees the heart. The, the sin of Ananias and Sapphira was rooted in the motivation of their heart. And scripture tells us that our hearts are deceptively wicked. And sometimes even knowing the true motivation of our heart is hard. But by God's grace, his spirit, his grace and power helps overcome that. Their motivation, they... They wanted to be recognized in the community without really making a sacrifice. Tim Keller writes that another way of looking at this sin is that they're guilty of using God for themselves rather than serving God for himself. And it's easy to pass judgment on their actions and think, why would they do that? But the truth is we all do it to some degree and have. We all can fall into the trap of playing that game. But the Lord looks at the heart. This is what he said to Samuel when he was picking uh, a new king, he, he sees the heart. Uh, said to Samuel, don't look on his appearance for the height of his stature because I've, I've rejected him. The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And in our passage this morning, we see a guy whose heart was evidently right with the Lord in the way that he gave. So here's our good example a guy named Joseph, thus Joseph, but you probably know him as Barnabas because that's what the apostles called him. That was his nickname. The early church had grown so much over the last few months. I mean, we're talking thousands of people who've come to faith in Jesus. They're overseeing a mega church in Jerusalem. That's a multi-site church that's meeting in different homes and different places. And there's no way they knew everybody. But there were some people who kind of stood out like this guy who kept showing up encouraging everybody. Like he was just the, the, the best guy to see coming. Like you wanted to see uh, Joseph coming because you, you knew you were gonna be encouraged by him either in his actions or in his words or in some way, shape or form. And so like, I can't remember that guy, the encouraging guy, the encourager, what's his name? I don't know, I'm just gonna call him Barnabas, the son of encouragement. He, he lived it out. I wonder, uh, based on how you live out your faith, what would your nickname be? 
Would it be the encourager? Like Barnabas, would it be, um, would it be the generous one? Would it be the one who prays? Would it be the grumpy one? You know, the one who's, uh, whose mouth hasn't learned yet from their heart that Jesus rescued them? Who would you be? How are you living that, that out? God sees the heart. He sees the heart. And then uh, Barnabas sold his field. He belonged to him. He brought the money. He laid it at the apostles' feet. And friends, I would just end with this, telling you that because God sees the heart and because of Jesus' work on the cross, you've got nothing to prove you've got nothing to prove. See, the, the, this, that sin of spiritual deception is, is buying into this lie that somehow I've got, to, I've got to measure up for God to love me or I've got to measure up for other people to love me or I've got to measure up for myself to tolerate me. You've got nothing to prove. Here's how I know this. It's been proven for you, Galatians 2.20 for I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, in this body, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and dare I say, proved it for me. You've got nothing to prove. Some of you, you need to quit striving. Can I just say that graciously? You need to quit striving because your striving isn't pressing on to know Jesus like Tom talked about a couple Sundays ago, but it's, it's striving to prove something to God or to prove something to somebody else or just to prove something to yourself. And you know what? Maybe you will. And maybe one day you'll finally do enough and achieve that title or get that position or outrun your anxiety for a while, but uh, it, that anxiety's got some swift legs. It's gonna catch you. And then what? Let me ask you this question. Who saved you? If you're a follower of Jesus, who saved you? How much of it did you do? Nothing. So if, uh, if Jesus is the one who did it all, isn't he the same one who's going to keep you? Who's proven it for you? And lets you live in freedom then, not having to prove it. Now listen, hear this. I'm not saying not to live a life that, that strives after Christ or that, that pursues holiness or any of those things. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying, what's your motivation in it? Is it coming out of the fact that Jesus has made you new or is it somehow thinking in your head that your striving is going to fix whatever is in the rearview mirror or in your heart? Because it's not. The question is, why are you chasing after it? Why are you striving? Is it to know Jesus more? To know his benefits more? To reveal his grace? To become who he really wants you to be? Or just trying to prove something? See, the same Jesus who said, pick up your cross, follow me, and said it would be hard, also said this, come to me. All of you who labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke on you. Learn from me. Learn from me what it, it means to be holy and what it means to pursue it and what it means to be authentic. 
You've got nothing to prove, just learn from me. For I'm gentle, I'm lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Gordon MacDonald wrote, half of the misery in the world comes from trying to look like we're not rather than be what we're not. God gives grace and power, friends, through the gospel to purge spiritual deception from from each of us and from our church and to enable real, true, and nurture that authenticity. And one of the ways you can pursue that is getting in a life group. You can sign up as you leave this morning. But uh, there's no need to keep striving. To compare yourself to other people is, is such a waste of energy and time because you'll miss out on being who God designed and called you to be. I'll end with this. Many of you know I'm a, a big Iowa State fan. I went to, grew up in Iowa, uh, follow Iowa State a lot. Uh, my brothers uh, follow Iowa State. Uh, we're texting pretty much every basketball game, football game. I'm the guy who watches the basketball game and then it has an earbud in my ear listening to the radio broadcast at the same time when I'm watching the game. Any of you do that? I know some of you do, don't lie to me. Maybe not Iowa State. Uh, But the other night, uh, Tuesday night, they played Texas Tech and they just demolished him. And uh, they were interviewing one of the guys on the post game show on the radio. I was listening to it, I was cleaning some stuff up. And uh, he asked me, he said, well, why is it that each night, you know, it seems like there's a different guy who excels and is kind of the star of the game that night. And this guy, uh, he responded, well, we've got a saying in in our locker room that says, enjoy playing the tambourine. Because not everybody needs to be the lead singer. I was just playing my tambourine tonight. You know, uh, when you buy into the the lie of deception that you've got to be somebody you're not, that you don't have value unless I'm in this position or if I'm doing this thing or if I have this gift or if I uh, talk like this or act like what... You don't need to be the lead singer. If God's called you to be the lead singer, be the lead singer and sing, with, sing your heart out. It'd be awesome. But if he's giving you a tambourine, play it like nobody's played it, right? And be who God's called you to be, authentically. Let me pray. Uh, we're gonna sing and call it a morning and, uh, and head out for the week. Father, Thank you for your great grace. Thank you for Jesus. Lord, thank you for your great power as well to to change us, to change our hearts, to to give us new life. The power of Jesus of your resurrection. Um, Holy Spirit, would you help us to to know that grace and to know that power personally and and practically in our lives? Uh, That we would uh, live it out in, in love for you and in love for one another that there be great unity among our church as we pursue the gospel and uh, seek to love people and invite them to follow Jesus with us. And then would you guard our hearts too from spiritual deception and help us repent of it when we, when we sin, when we try to uh, compare ourselves to others or be somebody we're not or, or deceive people or deceive ourselves or even try to deceive you. Lord, thanks for your grace. Father, thank you for Jesus. We pray all this through him. Amen.